Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in each episode I'll be taking a look at a piece of Lovecraft's writing, a story, a letter, or set of letters, or some other fragments of his writing or poems. And currently we're going to look at his most famous essay, his most famous essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. At least we'll look at part of it, the first half or so. I've been reading this uh, essay very carefully. It's something like 30,000 words, a little bit short of 30,000 words. It's it's almost the length of a small book, um, but it's fairly accessible. It's pretty uh, straightforward. It's uh, it's a good essay to read. It, it really gives, I think, a good overview of literature uh, or weird fiction as it's as it stood in Lovecraft's old, old, old own time. Um, and it gives a lot of interesting philosophy. So, you know, kind of this this essay is broken up kind of into two big parts. It's, it's 10 chapters, but it's broken up into sort of two parts. Uh, the first chapter, the first part is essentially the first chapter, which looks into the philosophy of horror. And then we have a series of chapters looking at different eras and geographical regions and, the, you know, looking at writers and major works. And that second half is, is a little bit easier to, to swallow. Basically, he just lists various works, gives some plot descriptions of important works, uh, summarizes significance, the ones he likes. Um, in a very straightforward way. Um, but I think most people go to this essay for the first chapter, um, which is what I'm going to start talking about. And then after that, I'll go into a little of the content of this of this uh, very important essay uh, beyond the introduction, beyond chapter one. We've actually been talking about this work for a while now. I've been looking at the letters Lovecraft wrote between 1924 and 1929 uh, in a series of episodes I've just completed. Go back and listen to them if you want. Um, but you can tell from his letters that he worked really, really hard on this essay. Uh, it's, it's actually quite impressive. He wrote it over a number of years and he went back and read uh, numerous works and you can tell by the suggestions he gives to other people and some of the discussions he has with other writers just how much he was reading to uh, research this and to get this this article out um, it was written uh, between November 1925 and May 1927 two years uh, so this is the kind of output that will uh, if he was a, a English department uh, professor would be a good way not to get tenure I would think uh, you know, two essays a year is minimum, right, these days? Uh, now, it was published in August of 1927, but then later revised and expanded in later on in his life in 1933-1934, where he just adds a little bit, I think, to Chapter 10, and maybe make some of the revisions. It's not that significant, because really what this is is a survey of literature up until the early 20th century. Um, the bulk of the essay dealing with, I would say, the 19th century and even a little bit before. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's really worth reading, at least the first chapter. If, if The rest can be like a reference work, but I, I think it's useful to maybe skim through it at least to know what he talks about. So it kind of creates a nice little bibliography for you to go back to and read if you're interested in earlier, especially Gothic fiction, if you want to kind of have a map of a guide of, of what's in Lovecraft's mind. Um, so I'm going to be thinking about that, too. Like the works he's drawn to are works. He doesn't reference himself. This isn't a self-serving essay, I think, by and large. 
it's not you know the first chapter maybe seems that way like he's really fitting him this this whole genre into cosmic horror in a way um but by and large i don't think the essay is self-serving i don't even think he mentions himself at all as as one of the modern masters of of, of horror or of weird fiction but that said the works he's gravitated to are going to be ones that that fit his overall worldview and themes. And we're going to see that a lot with like his obsession with witches in, you know, in this essay. So anyways, let's, let's at least talk about chapter one in this episode. And if we have time, we can jump into later uh, chapters. And then in the next episode, I'll just kind of survey what's said and, and what kind of works he's interested in, in the other chapters. So he starts off with this very, very famous phrase. You've all probably heard it before. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And then he um, talks about this in the context of, of of the horror genre, but also in the context of like the other kind of literature out there, and in the context of of where modern science is, right? And if you've been following me as you read his letters, he was thinking about this a lot in his letters too. Um, now, if you remember, there one of his major arguments is we is like especially with this kind of racial arguments and his cultural arguments and his arguments about civilization is that the indifference of the universe science teaches us this science kills god science not only kills god it kills humanity it kills humanism because it makes humans so far from the center of the universe that they're kind of adrift so this is like the essence of cosmic horror um but but then how do we live? How do we survive this? Well, some people stick to their religious guns. They insist God is not dead. Others find other insipid ways to kind of deal with this. Lovecraft thinks a certain type of people, sensitive type, as he calls them, imaginative type, can find like embracing this more psychologically appealing to them. And this is where supernatural horror um, has its appeal, right? I think when you read this introduction, you're reminded of just how small the, the audience was for weird fiction. He was like Lovecraft was incre incredibly popular for weird, weird tales readers. But how many people read weird tales at the time? I don't think it was a huge number. And a lot of these works, a few are famous, a few are like, you know, been famous since they were written. Shelley's Frankenstein, for instance. But very few of these works are like commonly known works like that's not true of like other literature where there's plenty of works that everyone knows so there's still kind of a compartmentalization in all of literature of horror um and i don't think lovecraft fights against that he's not saying this is the universal literature he says that this is something that's going to appeal to a certain character of people now he does pick on other literature a little bit here in the introduction because he, he does think horror literature is a little special uh, in that it can kind of attune itself to the psycholo psychological needs of people in this modern age in special ways. But he sort of picks on here what he calls didactic literature, writing against it, or just against uh, weird tale, against horror, uh, against embracing the reality of a materialistic, indifferent universe. So against it are discarded all the shards all the shafts of materialistic sophistication which cling to frequently felt emotions and external events and of a naively insipid idealism which 
deprecates the aesthetic motive and calls for a didactic literature to uplift the reader towards a suitable degree of smirking optimism. But in spite of all this opposition, the weird tale has survived. So that's the enemy of the weird tale is didactic literature. All right. That's how he opens up his, his essay. He opens up with this problem of the indifferent universe, our fear of it, and then literature that embraces this and literature that runs from it. Now, why is weird fiction, why is the horror tale so uh, non-popular? Why, what he calls the spectrally macabre. Why is it so unpopular? Why is its appeal so narrow? And, th and that is because only a few people have this imagination or this sensitivity the, for, quote, a detachment from everyday life. Um, basically, most of us are just too much uh, tied to the day-to-day the -day of, of life. So we can't really... We're not really open to experiences outside of that that veil of the everyday life, and and this isn't obviously a lot of this fiction deals with supernatural, which is something Lovecraft didn't believe in. But what he certainly believed in was the vastness of the universe, its its scale, and he thinks horror by breaking the sh the breaking down the everyday at least opens our us imaginate in an imaginative sense to that broader universe. And he thinks the, the, the problem is so big, the, the, the problem of, of the vastness of the universe is so big that there's really no way you can get around this except by really facing it. And he thinks horror fiction is the best that does this. You know, he, gets, he lists some of the things that, that are presented as solutions to this problem, like reform, right? Like, you know, you know reform's good and all, but it doesn't deal with the ultimate problem that our existence doesn't really have meaning. Uh, some kind of rationalization, religion. He talks about even Freudian analysis as a way. They can't, quote, annul the thrill of the chimney corner whisper or a lonely wood. He, there is here involved a psychological pattern or tradition as deep and as really grounded in mental experience as any other pattern or tradition of mankind, coeval with the religious feeling and closely associated with many aspects of it. And too much a part of our inmost biological heritage to lose keen potency over a very important though not numerically great minority of our species, end quote. So again, it's only a few of us who are, who are really going to be drawn to this kind of thing. I will say in re reply here, like a lot of people like horror. I mean, it's not, maybe it's still a minority of people. Uh, you meet someone and you want to go to the movies, you go to a horror movie, you know, maybe that's not what you say on a first date, right? It's, it's, you know, you shouldn't go to movies on first dates anyways, but, it's it's maybe not something you you assume other people will like, right? You feel them out first, and then when you find out they like horror, then you then you know everything's golden. Yeah, I think that's true. But still, I think he's underestimating the how enduring and popular this stuff is uh, nowadays. And maybe it's because we haven't really addressed ourselves to these cosmic questions of of the universe, of the death of God, in a in any other way and and he's claiming it can't really be addressed in these other ways science can't deal with it religion can't psychology can't just uh kind of political reform social reform revolution these things can't really solve these ultimate problems so you would expect then that the interest in this would grow over over time um then he gets into a conversation about fear and he sort of tries to define fear or where it comes from right and what fear is, is it's a really a base emotion, he says. It, it's, it's our first emotion. He says it's the oldest. Not just oldest in an evolutionary sense, right? You see animals. I don't know if animals really always feel fear. I, I mean, I've seen animals play, but they certainly, 
I don't want to anthropomorphize them, but you know, they're often hiding, they're often scared. You got the predator prey thing. You know, if you ever lived with, I, I just had a cat. He ran away, but unfortunately, but haven't been able to find him. But you know, even in the house, you know, you see cats behaving in fearful ways. And I'm sure that's true of animals in the wild more than more than even those in homes. Um, so in an evolutionary sense, it's it's probably older than other emotions. I mean, it's how we survive, right? It's what my colleague calls the reptilian brain part of it, part of our, our, our mind. Um, but oldest also for the individual, right? Being the first thing we feel when we, we, we come out of the womb. Um, quote, despite feelings of pleasure and pain grew up in a phenomenon whose causes and effects he understood whilst around those which he did not understand were naturally woven such personifications, marvelous interpretations and sensations of awe and fear. So what he's saying here is when we don't know, when we have this unknown, we, we fill it up with explanations. Those explanations may do. They may actually be have wisdom in them. They may uh, give us some rational answers. And I, I, I would say Lovecraft thinks that's still true as far as science has gone. I mean, because science has only asked more questions. And it's only made the universe more vast, more horrifying. You know, it's like, I guess the caveman who's afraid of the lightning explains it that the god is shooting lightning bolts at us. But that's scary. Lightning's scary. It's not as scary maybe as like the black hole or the heat death of the universe or the these kinds of things. So he, he sort of thinks that this stuff's kind of hardwired into our, our mind. I guess it's almost a scientific fact that fear is, is, is cultivated in us. Kind of we inherited from earlier cultures, but it's even even almost biological. He even calls it, he even says here, there's an actual physiological fixation on the old instincts in our nervous tissue, which would make them obscurely operative, even if were the conscious mind to be purged from all senses of wonder, end quote. That I don't know if it's true, uh, but he's saying if, if you were to take away all culture, all knowledge, what you'd be left with is just this basic fear. Again, I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know enough about the psychology of fear, or the biology of fear, but... It sounds reasonable. I mean, especially from his context and from his point of view, it seems to me to make quite a lot of sense. Um, but you know, you can't really test this up against modern modern science of, of emotions. Um, now, next, then he moves on to kind of the experience of of fear, and he, he says that this is a he's kind of got a Schopenhauerian argument here. Schopenhauer argues that like the pain's always go, the universe is always going to outweigh the pleasure in the universe in aggregate terms, and he says this is even in the personal. Lovecraft here says it's even in the personal, and how we remember pain and death more vividly than pleasure. And this is just a thought experiment any of you can have, in which you, you know, you how many horrible experiences, how many embarrassing situations can you remember versus how many happy ones you, you can. Uh, I assume I'm not alone in thinking about embarrassing, humiliating, or uh, experiences, experience where you did something wrong and you feel bad about it. These things stay with you, right? Uh, personally, traumatic experiences stay with us probably longer than they do for other people, right? The person who humiliated me probably doesn't even remember who I am or the experience at all, but I still keep hold of that right uh so again i think this is this is kind of true so uh we we respond to this again he brings this up again about religion we, we respond to this by religious rituals by uh mysticism 
you know, by folklore as ways of managing the indifference of the universe. Quote, this tendency, too, is naturally enhanced by the fact that uncertainty and danger are always closely allied, thus making any kind of an unknown world a world of peril and evil possibilities. So it's always going to be with us. And he even mentions your children. You know, children will always be afraid of the dark. I think that's another famous quote from this opening um, passage. So then he brings us to, so this is why there's always going to be a market for, there's always going to be an interest in, there's always going to be a fascination for uh, literature that it can explore this quote-unquote cosmic fear. Again, I don't think this is a by and large self-serving essay, but it's hard not to put it alongside his other, his works, because this is the, the way he comes at horror. But when he writes the essay, he doesn't only write about cosmic horror, which would have been much smaller and more limiting. Uh, he just kind of grounds this. This first, this is why maybe this first introduction is maybe all you need. Uh, I think there's interesting stuff throughout it, but you can kind of get by with just this first two-page chapter. It's two pages in the thing I printed out. It's probably longer if you were to read it in an actual book or a journal. Um, but so he moves on to this endurance of cosmic horror. Also, how it goes way back, you know, and he does this pretty well in the essay too, saying how far back can we go to find weird fiction? We, we actually can go uh, quite a ways back. He doesn't even go back as far as he could have. He probably could have went back to, you know, even the tale of Gilgamesh, Epic of Gilgamesh and Mesopotamian religion and things like that. But obviously religious literature, which is some of the oldest stuff we have, is full of, of monsters and terrors and fear of death and, and, and fear of pain and all that kind of stuff. Um, he gives some examples. He also gives examples of how writers who don't even write horror, who don't make it their profession, have dabbled in cosmic fear, cosmic horror, dabbled just in horror tales because it's so appealing and so universal. So he mentions Dickens, Browning, Henry James, uh, Char uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, W.W. W. Jacobs, people who didn't primarily write horror fiction, but they did write a few tales. And all of them wrote, all these people I mentioned wrote tales that we all probably know or, or you, you, you probably should be aware of. So they're not insignificant stories in the horror genre. It's not just that they played around with it and failed. These are foundational works. So next he makes a distinction, and this is the same distinction that Stephen King makes in Dance Macabre. Of course, he, in Dance Macabre, King talks about terrifying, horrifying, and, and the gross out. Lovecraft doesn't use such vulgar terms to talk about it. He says, uh, this type of fear literature must not be confounded with a type externally similar, but psychologically widely different. The literature of mere physical fear and the mundanely gruesome. Such writing, to be sure, has its place as the conventional or even whimsical or humorous ghost story where formalism or the author's knowing wink removes the true sense of cosmic fear in its pure sense. The true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or shackled form clanking chains, according to the rule. And then he gets into his definition of really what horror is. And horror really is something that gets at, that picks at that unknown and, and, and gets beyond the physical laws of nature. Quote, which are the, our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. And then in the final paragraph of the introduction, very short, uh, I think it's the shortest chapter in the whole essay, but the richest and the, maybe the most meaningful. Uh, in the final paragraph, he talks about diversity within the, into this genre. And he also says, like, there's also difference in talent and, and outcome and effect. So how do you know what a good weird tale is? I guess that's what the question is asking here. What's a good one? 
And he says, it's not so much the author's intent. I mean, authors can fail at this. This is a really hard thing to do. Um, in pure didactic literature, maybe the intent is all that matters. But uh, in the weird tale, what it matters is the effect. You can obviously tell he's being influenced by Poe here, who put all of his marbles, at least in many of his tales, into the effect, into the setting, into the mood. He says, that's what ultimately matters here. Um, we must not judge a weird tale. We must judge a weird tale not by the author's intent or by the mere mechanism of the plot, but by the emotional level which it attains at its least mundane point. So again, like within a tale itself, you're going to have parts that maybe don't reach that height. It might just be a moment. It might just be a part of the story in which you have that sensation. But you 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 judge the tale by how it succeeds or fails at that moment, right? Not at the tale overall. Um, but also here is it doesn't matter kind of what the device is. I, I think like you could look at like some of Lovecraft's creatures and say, oh, that's that's kind of not that scary from our point of view. You can read actually a lot of weird tales and, and say, well, that's not really a scary monster or something. Right. But that's not the point. The point is, does the effect work? And then the monster may not actually be that that horrifying to us. Sometimes the showing, this is something else King gets into a lot in his uh, Dance Macabre, is, is the showing versus the, the feeling, right? The unknown is scarier than the knowing. But anyways, those are, that's, that's kind of what he talks about in the first uh, chapter. Again, it's, it's quite short, but it packs a lot of important uh, themes that tie to his, uh, that set up the whole article, really. It's the most philosophically important part of this tale. It also ties it most closely to what he's trying to do in his own literature, in his own in his, in his own stories. Um, but and I think it gets to the heart of the matter, which is why some of us like this thing. And I think that's still a relevant question because we've all met people who just don't like horror for whatever reason. And those of us who do can't maybe fully understand why they don't. Um, but Lovecraft makes this distinction between the sensitive and the non-sensitive as you know, the imaginative and those who, who for whatever reason lack that imagination or, or don't use those imaginative muscles. But he also says it's kind of a common human experience going way back in history, going way back to even our evolutionary past to compensate for the unknown with, with our imaginations. And I think that's a really cool part of the argument. Yeah, so I guess I have a few minutes. Uh, there's no time limit on these episodes, but uh, let's keep it reasonable. Uh, let's talk about chapter two. Um, so chapter two through chapter 10, the rest of this essay, this quite lengthy essay, is a survey of, of horror stories uh, throughout history. And this chapter two is one of my favorites because it's, it really gets, I wish there was more of this. I wish, I think Lovecraft didn't have access to a lot of this stuff or didn't know a lot about this. But this one goes back as far as he's able to. And, and I wish you'd do more of it. He does mention like ancient Egypt and uh, the old tales of the Jews. It doesn't really get to, well, he says Mesopotamia. So it's the highest development in Egypt and Semitic nations. So that's, that's Mesopotamia. He doesn't mention too many works in particular here, but he does go back. And he, he thinks the origin of all this stuff is occult magic, right? Uh, religious rituals. And again, if you read 
old religious stuff. It's full of the mystical. It's full of gruesome things. It's full of death. It's so full of fear of the death. It's about it's about the afterlife. There's monsters, right? If you look at like Mesopotamian art, they always have these half human, half animal creatures. You have all these gods. You have massacres. You have gruesome deaths. You have uh, all kinds of bizarre supernatural stuff in these early early tales. He mentions specifically the Book of Enoch and the the Clavaculi of Solomon. I don't even know those two works. I would add, I think certainly the Epic of Gilgamesh. You could say maybe the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, there's a lot of old Chinese tales, which Lovecraft has no awareness, awareness of, that I think he would certainly, if he had known about them and read them, he could have certainly expanded his geographical examination here. In fact, all he really is able to say about Asia here is, in the Orient, the weird tale tended to assume a gorgeous coloring and sprightliness which almost transmuted it into sheer fantasy. He does mention um, uh, Lafcadio Hearn's works, uh, which were translations of Japanese and Chinese ghosts. So I think that's a footnote or an exception to this. So we do get a little bit of Asian ghosts through Hearn and, and, and through Hearn to Lovecraft, but very, very little. Not straight from the source. Uh, not straight from the, the text themselves. Um, I don't know, but some of that was translated, I think, but maybe not. Not in Lovecraft's library, anyways. Uh, he talks about the Middle Ages, too, the interest in magic, and even how science kind of dabbled into these occult things, like alchemy and things like that. So this opening section on the, the chapter, The Dawn of the Horror Tale, is great. I, just a historical overview. You, you get the sense this could have been a whole other essay where someone would just go through the deep history of the horror tale. Um, then he jumps without a doubt, and this is why I think you can't totally escape his obsessions uh, in this essay. As as much as he educated himself and as much research as he did, he still can't escape his obsessions. And, and here he comes back to the witch cults right away, something he was really, really interested in. And as always, he holds to this position, which I mention a lot, not because I think it's wrong. I, I think it might actually be true, and I think that's what's more interesting about it. But he kind of plays with this idea that the witch sabbaths are real he writes the secret of religion stealthily handed down among peasants for thousands of years despite the outward reign of the druidic greco-roman and christian faiths in the regions involved were marked by wild witches sabbaths in lonely woods and atop distant hills on walpurnus night and halloween end quote now that of course reminds us of of, of the witch house story he wrote, wrote dreams in the witch house dreams of the witch house um, but after the Christians come in, these traditions predate Christianity. So when the Christians come in, they get reinterpreted or rethought of as like saint worship, but they're even more primordial than that. Um, this, then he gets back into mentioning, you know, alchemy and science again, which is great, interesting as well, because he's never, uh, totally distangling science with horror, even in the opening passage, even the opening chapter, he's saying it's because science has taken us to this point that horror, horror's popularity has, has expanded and maybe is more necessary than ever. But the fact that science always was dealing with the occult, dealing with, witch, with witchcraft, black magic, morbidity, things like that. I mean, think of even the Egyptians, like What's the big scientific achievement of the Egyptians besides maybe the pyramids? It's like mummification, right? They have this whole science worked out of how to preserve these bodies. 
So then we get a long list of different mythologies uh, in Europe. Uh, he talks about the. He mentions some mo modern like reinterpretations and rereadings of these things, and how some of these things like the the ghost wife, the ghost bride, like you see in Washington Irving's tale, uh, this, the the German student tale. Uh, how does this goes way back? He talks about the Norse mythology, Beowulf, some of the. The, the stuff from English mythology, like Beowulf, but also the tales of King Arthur. Quite a lot here on the Norse. And he kind of dabbles and plays with all these different uh, medieval uh, texts. Um, and then he skips through the, the 16th and 17th century in the same kind of speedy way, getting to the kind of skipping over the age of reason because he doesn't really want to deal with it. He doesn't have much to say about it. But he's going to pick up the essay in chapter three with the Gothic and with the writings of the 18th century. And I guess that's where I will pick up as well in the next episode. So in the next episode, I will highlight some of what Lovecraft says in chapters three through 10 of supernatural horror and literature. I won't need to be as detailed because a lot of this is just like sometimes the whole chapter will focus on one work, even though it'll have a broader theme in its title. Uh, so it it's... It's not going to take us as, as long to get through it line by line like we have to do the first chapter. But I think you get the idea of what's in Supernatural Horror and Literature. Again, it's a great essay, highly recommended for anyone who reads Lovecraft and anyone who's just interested in having a map of or a bibliography of horror literature, in the, especially the 18th and 19th century. So that's it for now. If you have anything to add or any thoughts about uh, this particular work, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I will, uh, anyways, I'll, I'll love to hear from you if you do have those, those thoughts or any revisions you think I should, any other way I should look at this. Uh, if, if I'm missing anything, let me know what that might be. Well, uh, that'll be it for now. See you next time when I finish up uh, my thoughts on this essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. See you then.